for you. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Have a seat. I'm caught. Am I caught? I'm thinking to be caught. I'm not. We're going to be in uh, Daniel chapter 1. Oh, Joseph, thank you. Thank you. Daniel chapter 1 is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. On uh, Saturday, March 24th, 1984, five students report to Shermer High School for all-day detention. Claire Standish, the popular girl, Brian Johnson, the brainiac, and Andrew Clark, the jock, find their way to some sort of connection as the normal kids, leaving John Bender, the rebel, he's on the left, and Allison Reynolds, the outcast, there in the middle, struggling to connect with the rest of the group. That's the breakfast club. In the summer of 1958, two teenagers fall in love. Danny Zuko and Sandy Olson become hopelessly devoted to one another. And a sudden change of plans has, sudden, has Sandy enrolling in the high school that Danny attends, and she comes to discover that this tender-hearted boy that she met on the beach is actually a leather-clad, tough guy, rebel without a cause. And in the end, let me just footnote this, in the end, Sandy does what no woman should do. She gives up her morals to be with, with Danny. This is why my high school musical director, theater director would never let us do Grease because the woman changed her standards to be with the boy. So let that be a lesson to you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Greece and the Breakfast Club, they put in front of us the outcasts. The outcasts. The kids, for whatever reason, zig when everybody else zags. They go against the grain. Danny Zuko and Allison Reynolds and John Bender, they zig when everyone around them zag. And I don't care when you went to high school or where, but in any social strata of any high school, there are the people that go with the flow and rise to the top of the popularity food chain, and then there are people that just refuse to go with the flow. There are people that zig when others zag, whether that be the flower power hippies of the 1960s summer of love, the 1960s summer of love, maybe that's the 1990s goth kids with spiky hair and pale faces and their oversized Jinko jeans. Remember those? Uh, these individuals, when they, they zig when others zag, they zig when others zag, and, and, and they possess a genius. And not the genius of, well, one day I will employ the people that bullied me, so there. Although that's often true. Uh, but it's a genius of resistance that is absolutely necessary for us as followers of Jesus to learn from in this moment. In our cultural moment, uh, we are, the people of Jesus, we are in exile. And we explored this last week, that 
followers of Jesus in our cultural moment, we're what sociologists call a cognitive minority. It's the pattern of our thinking and our way of life is at increasingly sharper odds with the way of life of our culture around us, the way of life of our neighbors, coworkers, and quite frankly, even some of our family members. Paul Tabori describes a person in exile as an outcast in their own country. And the Barna Group, uh, in studies uh, of, of American culture and Christianity, borrows that from the idea of the Babylonian exile that Israel experienced in the Old Testament and says that we're all of us living in digital Babylon. Uh, it used to be that in quiet little Warren and the sleepy little Mahoning Valley, we were kind of isolated from some of the more progressive parts of our society, but with a digital reality with phones and tablets and TVs, our culture is, is just shifting radically at ever-increasing paces. There's a disequilibrium felt by Christians, and hear me, that disequilibrium is good. The lack of disequilibrium was killing us. The disequilibrium that, our early, that the early church felt under Roman rule, that was key. That was key to the health and vibrancy of the early church. And the scriptures call us to know the signs of the times. And my argument is that the signs of the time are those of exile. And in exile, when we are outcasts in our own country, we have far more in common with Danny Zuko. We have far more in common with the rebels and the troublemakers than we do with the jocks and the preps. In exile, you and I are called to a similar kind of otherness. You and I are called to zig when others zag, to walk the way of holiness, to walk the way of holiness. In the book of Daniel, we meet a group of friends who choose to zig where others zag. And in the process, they experience the profound favor of God. Daniel and his friends walk the way of holiness. So we're going to look at this journey in Daniel chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible, meet me there. The book of Daniel, the book of Daniel is like the half and half you put in your coffee. About half of it is prophetic, apocalyptic literature. The other half is narrative. Uh, and this is what Daniel starts off with in Daniel 1, starting in verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim. Now just stop there. Remember, we talked about last week how it's the Lord that sends into exile. So even here we see that theme of the Lord's kind of sovereignty involved. Right? The Lord gives the enemy victory. Uh, gives them victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the, king, the chief of staff, to bring into the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. So in other words, you know, like me, for example. Uh, make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge, and are good in judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years and then would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. Verse 7, the chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. 
Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. Abednego. Daniel and his friends are part of the upper ruling class in Babylon. Remember we talked about last week how Babylon grabbed that whole people group and put them in the midst of their culture. But King Nebuchadnezzar has this idea to take the cream of the crop of that royal ruling class to bring them into the royal palace and to train them to enter royal service. The idea was to take upper middle ruling influential Israelites and indoctrinate them with Babylonian culture, to indoctrinate them. That indoctrination begins with how they're fed, it begins with what they read, it ends with the changing of their names, right? In exile, the first thing that we tend to give away is our name. The first thing that we give away is our identity. But notice who they have in mind. They want young, good-looking men. They want wise and insightful men. They want people that will appeal in the broadest way to the, to the Israelites at large. They want people who will be Instagram influencers, is what they want. They want people who will influence the larger Israelite culture that's in exile, that will be brand ambassadors for Babylon to the Israelites. Daniel and his friends are chosen, and this is what happens starting in verse 8. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. So he asked, underline the word asked in your Bible, he asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel, but he responded, I am afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I am afraid the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. They're going to just eat like Preston and Tessa for 10 days is what they're going to do. Um, at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed and, uh, and agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. Daniel says that he does not want to defile himself by eating what is served to him. Well, why would it defile him? Uh, Daniel is an Israelite. He's a Jew. There are kosher laws. There are strict laws in the Old Testament covenant, about, in the Old Covenant, about what you could and could not eat. Shellfish, pork. And I guarantee you, on this table that was from the king's own kitchens, were all sorts of these wonderful things, even wine that wasn't kosher. And Daniel says, I can't defile that. He resists. But do you notice how he resists? He asks. He asks. The, by, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, and actually parts of Daniel are written in Aramaic, and the Hebrew word for asked in verse 8 is not engaged in cancel culture, is not protested, is not boycotted, is not created a petition, is not insisted on his own rights. We'll get to that in a minute, but flash forward, Daniel has no rights in this scenario. Daniel asks. He doesn't need to get himself all worked up. He doesn't need to get angry because he trusts the Lord's presence is with him. Angry people in this position just don't trust that the Lord is with them. They think they need to give the Lord some help, right? Daniel just asks, knowing that the Lord is with him, and the chief of staff agrees agrees to Daniel's proposal, agrees 
that they'll let them try the vegan diet and do a comparison in 10 days. And we're going to see how this plays out in a moment, but let's stop and just notice that Daniel is zigging where everybody else around him is zagging. Daniel is zigging where everyone else around him is zagging. Daniel is practicing holiness. Holiness. Now, it doesn't look like holiness to us, and I'll tell you why. Because Daniel isn't being mean. Daniel isn't being grumpy. Daniel isn't like the people that I used to serve when I worked at Panera on Sundays in high school. He's not condescending. He's not unkind. He's not, and here's where we get the phrase, holier than thou. People that are holier than thou use their holiness as both a bludgeon and a shield. They use it as a weapon against people that they think are less than them, and and they use it as a shield to defend themselves against anybody that might critique their hypocrisy. Holiness has a bad reputation. It is a bummer word to Christians. It is a bummer word. And I'll tell you why. It implies a level of moral perfection that we are pretty sure we're never going to attain to no matter how hard we try. Christian, we spend our whole Christian lives trying to be more holy, trying to be more like Jesus, but it doesn't take you long to figure out that it's not going as easy as you thought it would go. So we have two kinds of Christians among us. We have Christians who feel defeat and shame, who hang their heads in guilt, who are never, ever going to be good enough. And then we have Christians who've just given up the goat entirely, just thrown in the towel and we'll live an apathetic, ambivalent spiritual life because we might as well go on sinning so that grace may abound. But to be fair, holiness has a bad reputation among Christians, but it also has a bad reputation among non-Christians for the very reason that I told you about when I was in high school. Christians who pretend to be holy are often jerks. I mean, you just successfully did your holiday season, congratulations, with your crazy uncle who knows the Bible back and forth, but is also really unkind. Congratulations, you don't need to see him again for 10 months. Good job, unless you get together at Easter. And if you want to get out of that, just let me know. You can sign up to serve on a team, and then you just have to be at church that morning. You know what I mean? Um, That's a joke. Um, Too many non-Christians stumble over the word holy because of these self-aggrandizing, hypocritical people they know. Too many non-Christians stumble over the word holy because every major religion engages in holy war. But here we find Daniel practicing holiness. We, Daniel, who, we find Daniel who just can't bring himself to eat the food and wine set before him because it would displease the Lord. So Daniel quietly, humbly, kindly, sincerely, respectfully zigs where others zag. And that's the heart of holiness. John Wesley, in 1735, said, The essence of Christian holiness is simplicity and purity. One design, one desire, entire devotion to God. The word design in 1735 means a little different thing now, but it means a plan, it means a scheme, it means the way that we go about living, it means intention. Christian holiness is simplicity and and, and purity. It's one design, one desire, one entire devotion to, to God, and it's out of that one entire devotion to God, that simplicity and that purity, that Daniel zigs where others would zag. It just leaves Daniel with no other choice but to zig where others would zag. 
So he kindly and graciously zigs. He asks the attendants. He does not get angry. He is not outraged. He does not boycott. He does not protest because to do so would be to zag with the culture, not against it. In fact, Daniel practices a double zigging. He doesn't zig just once by nodding in the food. He zigs twice by resisting in a different way than the world resists. How do we resist now? Violently. With outrage. With anger. So to, even, but, so to zig away from something with that kind of attitude would be to zag with the rest of the culture. So Daniel double zigs. He zigs by not eating and zigs by doing so kindly and respectfully. In fact, he does a triple zig. Daniel doesn't eat the food. He does so kindly and respectfully, and he does so in a community of others. Do you see that? He gathers around him. We'll talk about this when we talk about the way of freedom, that the way we tear down strongholds in our lives and in our culture is by gathering groups of holiness that will zig with us. Because I'll tell you what, walking the way of holiness is hard. Walking the way of holiness is hard. And honestly, the people that walk the way of holiness by themselves get a little weird. Baby knows what I'm talking about. See, what we've done, this, why is this definition of holiness so different? It's because what we've done is we've come to solely measure holiness by behavior. By behavior. I mean, that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees tithed 10% of their mint, dill, and cumin, but Jesus said, forgot the weightier matters of the law, love and justice and steadfastness, Right? See, what we've done is we've come to measure holiness only by the external things of what we do, by our behaviors. And behavior is important. Hear me. Holiness is in part measured by behavior, but it is only measured in part. Jesus does say, you know a tree by its fruits. Our behavior is one of the indicators to what's going on. But there's another indicator, and that's what's going on inside of us. Holiness, John Wesley reminds us, is a matter of the heart. It is a matter of devotion. It is a matter of passion. It is a, a matter of loyalty. It is a matter of the heart. And here's what you need to understand, that in exile, it is our hearts that are up for grabs. It is our hearts that are up for grabs. They, whoever they are, the left, the right, advertisers, whatever, they are after your heart. They're after your heart. That's why cheeseburgers and cars and, and, and life insurance and houses are sold to me with sex, right? They're appealing to my baser instincts for pleasure. They're appealing to my baser instincts of fear. They're appealing to my, my basic instincts of comfort and, and, and protection. They're appealing to my basic instincts because if I give away my heart, I give away my holiness, if I give away my heart, I give away my holiness. This is why the book of Proverbs says what? Guard your heart above all things, for it is the wellspring of life. Your heart, the core of who you are, where your will and decision-making resides. Your will doesn't reside up here. It resides down here. It's in your gut. It's in your heart. It's at your deepest level of you, and that's what's up for grabs in exile. In exile, here, here's what the Babylonians knew. Did you notice that? Hey, ladies, how do you get to a man's heart? I'm asking. How do you get to a man's heart? Do you see what they tried to do in Babylon? They said, let's feed them out of the king's kitchens. That was good wine. That, won't, that wasn't no winking Al Aldi wine. You know what I'm saying? 
And it, it ain't no $20 wine that I buy when I'm trying to have a, like for our anniversary, you know, we're like, you know, in that part of the grocery store that I don't go, that nobody goes, the waddles are too dusty because ain't nobody spending 50 bucks on wine. No, it's, it's good wine, it's good food. It's good pork, it's good lobster, it's good crab, it's good bacon. They're trying to get to their hearts because holiness begins there. If they can get to our hearts, they'll totally erode our distinctiveness as the people of Jesus. If holiness calls us to zig when everybody else zags, if they can get to our hearts, we'll never zig anywhere. So here's my question for you. Where are you zigging? Where are you zigging where everybody else is zagging? It's me. Where are you zigging where everybody else is zagging? Or more likely, where are you zagging just with everybody else? Where are you indistinguishable from your non-Christians, your non-Christian friends and family? Where are you indistinguishable? Where do you stick out like a sore thumb? Where do you look like, remember in Dumb and Dumber when they go to the black tie event wearing powder blue and like orange crush suits? That's what it means to be holy. That's what it means to be holy. It means to stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, the call on our lives has from the beginning of our life with God all the way back to our ancestors in Israel. When they met God at the mountain, do you know what he told them? Be holy as I am holy. So Peter, in 1 Peter 1, he takes it a little further. He says, now you must be holy in everything you do. I looked at the word everything in Greek. Do you know what it means? Everything. Just as God, the God who chose you is holy, for the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. This is a monumental task. It is a lifelong task. But it is not an impossible one. You're sitting in a Methodist church this morning. That might freak you out a little bit, but you are. And you know what the hallmark of Methodism is? You know what the hallmark of Methodism is? Holiness that is possible and achievable in this life. That's the radical contribution of Methodism to the world. Not that we're really good at running churches like country clubs. But that, but that, but that, but that, that was a good smack, I think. But, 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 but it's this, it's this, it's holiness is possible and achievable in this life. That's what John Wesley believed. He called it Christian perfection. He said it is possible to be made perfect in love of God and love of neighbor in this life. And can I tell you why I hope that's true? If I'm made perfect in love of neighbor, I would find everybody in my world so much less annoying. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be amazing if it was possible to come into the presence of God unburdened from this overwhelming sense of guilt? It is possible in this life because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, is what John Wesley said. We've just given up the goat. But let's say for a moment that John Wesley was wrong. He wasn't, but let's just say for a moment he was. Then we would still have to heed the words of Paul, who says that Jesus gave up his life for us, for his church, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or a wrinkle or any other blemish. You and I are the bride of Christ. 
Just did two weddings the last couple weekends. Can I tell you how obsessive brides are about not getting anything on their dress? You and I aren't like that as Jesus' bride. Spill here, stain there. We can go on sinning so that grace may abound. No, no, no. Listen to me. Jesus lived and died and rose again to impute to us a righteousness we did not deserve so that we could experience a, holy, a holiness we could not earn. I got to tell you, I'm pretty proud of that line. That's, I'm, as far as I know, I'm not plagiarizing. He lived and died and rose again to impute to us a righteousness we did not deserve so we could experience a holiness we could never earn. And then Jesus gives us his spirit to dwell in us. He says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Dallas Willard commenting on this says, by the way, the gospel is opposed to earning, not to effort. You can't earn your way into heaven, but we're called to work hard to show the results of our salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. But listen to this, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases you. You start following in Jesus and there's this thing inside of you that makes you not like the things that you used to like and like the things you used not to like. That's called the Holy Spirit working in you. It's called the Holy Spirit moving you on to perfection in this life. John Owen, a Puritan, summarizes this phenomenon of of how we work with God to become more holy. He says that God works in us and with us, not against us or without us. Mm, Somebody needs to write that, that down in their notebook. In us and with us, not against us and without us. It's not coercive, it's cooperative. And so as a footnote to today, if you are proud If deep down inside of you there is some level of being more right because you are a Christian, politically, ethically, socially, morally, Paul also says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Here's the call on our lives, holiness. To have a devotion to God so deep and so singular that we will always naturally zig when our culture zags. Now here's how this sermon is super messing with me. Sometimes I like to say, if you think this is hard to hear, imagine sitting with it all week. Um, What's messing with me is the application of this sermon. Because it actually has me thinking about the, the zigging and zagging in the ordinary places of my life. So, so, so I like to watch Netflix. Steph and I usually at the end of every night watch an hour or two or, or, or three if we're really captivated by the show we're watching, which we are watching Netflix. But that's, that's what everybody does. So am I zagging where I really should be zigging? I'm not saying TV is bad. I'm just saying, should I be zigging where everybody else is zagging? I drink uh, alcohol, if that's a shock to you. You've just probably not known me long enough. Um, But it's had me thinking, am I zagging there where everybody else is zigging? Um, I've, I've been known to say a cuss word from time to time. 
Am I zagging where I'm really supposed to be zigging? Are we zagging with the busyness and the hurry of our culture? Are we, are we zagging in pleasure-seeking? Are we zagging in materialism and consumerism with two-day Amazon shipping? And here's what I, I've been thinking, what I bump up against when I think about those things is, it's just TV. It's just some words, it's just something I drink. It's not a big deal, but here's the thing for Daniel, it wasn't a big deal until it was a big deal, huh? And so maybe, maybe our parents and grandparents that didn't wear makeup and didn't play cards and didn't go to movies and didn't dance, maybe they were onto something. My secret suspicion, I didn't say this in the first service, my secret suspicion is that Jack's generation of Christians won't drink because he'll see the excess in my generation and want to push back against it. It's my secret suspicion. In the book of Numbers, there's this thing called a Nazarite vow. That's in Numbers chapter 6. And a Nazarite was somebody that would take a vow for a set period of time to increase their dependence on God, to increase their availability to God, to further set themselves apart for him. And uh, here's what you did during the vow. You didn't shave your hair or your beard. You didn't drink of the fruit of the vine. And you didn't touch a dead body. Now, touching a dead body, that feels pretty easy for most of us. Um, Unless you want to be a fighter, unless you want to be a warrior in an an era where war was typically hand-to-hand combat, you couldn't be a man's man then. You had to withdraw from the battle. Unless you're a farmer, as most of these people were, and touching a dead animal would defile you. It's actually a bigger sacrifice than it sounds. And these things, cutting your hair and drinking wine, they don't sound like a big deal until they are a big deal. And you know what the Nazarites experience when they make this vow? Number 6, verse 7 says they have the crown of the Lord on their heads. The crown of the Lord of the Lord on their heads. The Nazarites find favor with God. And that's exactly what Daniel and his friends encounter. Look with me at Daniel 1, starting in verse 15. We're going to be a little interactive, so wake up, okay? At the end of 10 days, Daniel and his free friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned to the king. Somebody say, favor. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables and instead of the other food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of wisdom and literature, and God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. Somebody say favor. When, training, when the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. Three years have gone by. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the royal service. Somebody say favor. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and the enchanters in his entire kingdom. Somebody say favor. Daniel remained in the court service until the first year of King Cyrus. Listen to me. When we walk the way of holiness, we find the favor of God. 
So I started looking up, what does favor mean? And I start finding a lot of Joel Osteen quotes and a lot of Paula White quotes, and that's not usually a group of people I like to hang out with. You know what I'm saying? But let's not, let's not give away something that's biblical just because we don't know what it means. Here's what favor means. I looked up all the ways that the Psalms, just the Psalms, use the word favor. They use them a lot. Here's what it means. It means, it means physical or spiritual protection. It means material or financial provision. And it means an increase in influence. That's why Paula White and Joel Osteen are all on it, but they may not be wrong because that sounds like something I want. And it also sounds like something that Daniel gets. Daniel is protected physically. Listen, guys, I know ours is a cultural moment where all of the conversations we're having right now are about our rights. But in an Iron Age monarchy like Babylon, there is no bill of rights that Daniel can say, I need to file a religious exemption so I can only eat vegetables. He has to ask for what his conscience needs and what would honor the Lord and then trust that the Lord would have his back. Do you know why we protest and get angry and, and, and have demonstrations? Because we're not sure that God will do his job if we just leave it to him. We feel like God needs a little help. Daniel just trusts it to him, and he experiences the favor of God. He experiences protection. The guy isn't like off with his head. He says, okay, let's try it for 10 days. He increases in spiritual, he increases in influence. Daniel, and the rest of the book of Daniel, we'll see he is the king's right-hand man. And the king kind of hates him for it, right? But he loves him for it too. And Daniel is materially and financially provided for for the rest of his life. That sounds like favor to me. And we find favor when we position ourselves for it. You want the favor of the Lord? You got to position yourself for it. And you know how you position yourself to receive the favor of God? You walk the way of holiness. You zig where everybody else zags. And here's the deep down dark secret. We all want the favor without the price it costs us. We want the favor of God without obedience to God. We want the favor of God without holiness in the way of Jesus. And so what we do is we live a favorless life, but we as 21st century Americans have the, the, the bonus that we can manufacture for ourselves our own kind of favor, where we have everything we need and have everything we want and have ourselves mostly protected. We don't need the favor of the Lord. But let's go to Africa. Let's go to Cuba. Let's go to India. And it's the favor of the Lord or bust. We receive the favor of the Lord by positioning ourselves to receive it, and we position ourselves to receive it by walking the way of holiness, and we walk the way of holiness by zigging where everybody else is zagging. Do you know what we need? We need more Nazarites. We need more Nazarites. We need more Nazarites. We need to zig. We need people who lay down their lives to zig in the ordinary places that don't seem they, like they matter. Do you know why we're not seeing the renewal and revival and massive impact that they see in Cuba and India and Africa and all of these places? It's because there are so many places that we don't have to zig and still be a good Christian. There's so many places we don't have to zig and can still follow the way of Jesus, but we need more Nazarites. 
We need people who choose to zig in the quiet, ordinary ways. We need, I didn't say this in the first service, we need a beautiful resistance. That's what holiness is. It is a resistance. We need a resistance. We need more Nazarites. We don't need more presidents and politicians and more talking heads and talking points. We don't need quick fixes and clever strategies to manufacture the favor for us. We just need more Nazarites. We need more men and women who will zig in the ordinary places. People who zig against the busyness and the hurry and the accumulation of stuff. People who zig into more generosity and simplicity and silence and discipline. People who take up the call of Jesus to holiness, whose hearts, whose hearts are hopefully devoted to God. But now you must be holy in everything you do. Just as the God who chose you is holy, for the scriptures say, you must be holy as I am holy. Amen. One of the things I'm so grateful for um, when we hear sermons like this is that God is so faithful to speak to each of us. And so in a moment, we're going to take that, that time, that silence, and ask the Father to, to point out the ways maybe in our lives where we're conforming, where we're not walking the way of Jesus, but we're, we're being conformed to the pattern of the world. And one of the things I want to encourage you is Lent is coming up. And sometimes we you know, think like, oh, I just am not going to eat chocolate, I'm not going to eat meat, whatever. I, I think Lent is a great time to recalibrate our hearts and to kind of reaffirm our commitment to the way of Jesus. And so during this time, my invitation would be that you would be listening to God's voice, and Scripture says that his sheep hear his voice and they recognize it, and ask him honestly and courageously, what is the thing, what is the one thing you're asking me to do differently to kind of recalibrate my heart and my life, Um, and then commit to either doing that now or throughout Lent. Um, to just take this opportunity, and so if that's like less social media, if that's less alcohol, if that's less TV, if that's less shopping, I don't know, whatever the Father's inviting you to. So let's take this moment and, and let him speak to us. Father, we thank you that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. God, I thank you that as we recalibrate our hearts and our lives, when we listen to your voice, when we respond with immediate obedience, I thank you that there is more joy and more freedom on the other side of that obedience. I thank you that you speak to each of us, 
we can hear your voice. Father, I pray that we would be a people um, that even though we are in exile, that we would look more and more like you, Jesus, in the little things and the big things. And I pray that the ripple effect of that would not just be our lives transformed, Father, but the lives of those around us transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we pray that we would walk in that power and that joy this week. Thank you.